Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. I wanted to finish this summer season on a high note with an outstanding biography of a major Australian literary figure, and that is Brigitte Olibas's magnificent account of the life of Australian novelist Shirley Hazard, called simply Shirley Hazard, a biography. Shirley Hazard was born in Australia, but lived most of her life overseas, primarily in Italy and the US. She credits Italy with what she called her rescued life, an intellectual and spiritual rebirth in a place she felt more at home in than her country of origin, which she found problematic, as we'll hear. The most well-known of her four novels, The Transit of Venus, still inspires almost cult-like devotion from her many admirers, including writers Michelle de Kretzer and David Malouf. As well as fiction, she wrote a charming account of her friendship with Graham Greene called Green on Capri and was also an essayist. She was introduced to her husband, Francis Stiegmuller, the distinguished biographer of Flaubert, by her friend Muriel Spark in 1963. Together, they moved in a rarefied circle of literary and artistic friends. Brigitte Olibas is the professor of English at the University of New South Wales. I worried that this might mean that her biography might be a little dry or too scholarly for the general reader. On the contrary, it is juicy with insight and fascinatingly shrewd in its analysis of the impulses that coloured Hazard's complex relationships with family, lovers and friends. Although it is authorised, it does not shy away from stories that show Hazard in an unflattering light, which makes it all the more human. Now, let me ask you, Shirley Hazard, I gather, was the subject of your master's thesis sometime in the 80s, is that right? And you you maintained your interest in her over all of this time. How long did this biography actually take to write? I I did uh, begin working on her in, in the 80s. I did write my master's thesis on her. Then I, I didn't work on her for years and years. So there was a long break when I, I, I didn't think about her at all and she wasn't publishing and, and so on. I began working on her again about a decade ago and in a, in a sense the research for this biography begins there. But I wrote a scholarly monograph on her work. I edited her essays and her stories which felt like the important kind of scholarly tasks to do. I only decided I wanted to write a biography after she died. And and again, it was part of a, it was a continuation of that sense of scholarly responsibility. I'd taken those editing and, and scholarly writing tasks on because no one else was doing it. And it felt important to, to have that kind of commentary. To me, that's very much part of a writer's longevity, their reputation rests on those not necessarily publicly facing aspects of of criticism. But after she died, I felt quite, it it came to me quite clearly that um, a biography should be written by a literary scholar, that that I would bring the the wealth of of, and depth of knowledge about her work uh, and would put that first before the, the person. And I wasn't really that interested in her life. It didn't seem to me to be particularly, I mean, you know, glamorous and everything, but not um, not rich enough, which which was wrong, you know, as I, as I found. There was a, a much more complex person there. Um, so that's the long answer to your question. The short answer is I started writing uh, in 2018, and so it's it, four, four years really of hard slog. 
Yes, but I think maybe, you know, this is like the concentration of a really good stock is that the elements have been there simmering away slowly and slowly and slowly until you get that really rich, essential reduction of a very good broth because it's taken time and you've been living with that material at a very deep level. I want to ask you, her papers are at Columbia University and you say in your source notes at the back of the book that some of them are processed and some of them are unprocessed. Can you just explain in layman's terms what that means? Yeah, so there's there's a huge variety of, of papers there. The, the bulk of them went to Columbia after she died and they were sorted a little bit partly by me, partly by others, uh, her, her executor and, and a, a grad student that was uh, brought in to, to do a few things. But then they have not been kind of sorted by the university archivists. So they are, well, they are currently now being, being processed. So that means an archivist, a curator, is, is sifting slowly through every single sheet, uh, every piece of paper and working out who people are. So I've been invited to kind of consult with them on that because no one knows a lot of these writers. And and a lot of the Australian writers uh, are not known, uh, you know, the people she's corresponding with are not known to to American readers. Uh, so that the, you know, the, one of the stories I tell is uh, when I was first looking through her papers in, in her apartment, there was a, a box of what looked just like fan mail letters from enthusiastic readers, which were, you know, kind of lovely and lovely that she'd kept them all. And then I saw an Australian aerogram in there and, and you know, pulled it out and, and it was from Hurstville, from a, a C. Blake of, of Hurstville. And I thought, oh, look, Mr or Mrs Blake is is doing writing to show, you know. And, of course, it's Christina Stead. Ah. Uh, <laughs> and so, the, 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 so that letter... Um, has gone to the State Library of New South Wales. Uh, in Shirley has its will. She left all the material relating to Australian writers and writing to come to Sydney, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, and I also collected a lot of her early books, the books she bought when she was living here, uh, when she was in New Zealand and in Hong Kong and on the way to New York and suggested to the executor that they too should be kept together and she thought they should come to Sydney as well. So there's this wonderful collection of her earliest formative reading here for, for people to look at. Which is Oh, that's lovely. Wonderful. Now, you've mentioned the executor twice and I wanted to ask you, the publicity material for your biography describes this as an authorised biography, but authorised by whom? Because Shirley didn't have children so I want to know who is in charge of the estate? Who are the gatekeepers and custodians, if you like? Yes. So um, her executors, the executor of the, the Hazard estate is uh, Shirley's friend, Annabel Davis-Goff, who has been incredibly helpful and given me access to everything and, and shared her own memories and, and so on. That, that, that's been wonderful to have her support. And Shirley's, uh, Shirley Hazard's literary executor, is her agent, uh, Lynn Nesbitt, and Janklin Nesbitt, who's also my agent. And so I was working very closely with, with those gatekeepers and had their, you know, their support. What difference do you think it would have made? I mean, what would an unauthorised biography 
of Shirley Hazard have contained that this one doesn't? What's the difference for you, given that you know this material backwards? Well, I suppose in the short term, it couldn't have been written because those unprocessed papers at Columbia are not open to the public yet. And I'm the only person that's seen them, apart from, you know, the archivists. And so I was given access to those and the archive required that um, because because they're not publicly open. Uh, so it would have been a lot less rapid. And in a way, there's a kind of chicken and egg thing because the papers are now being processed yes. because of the new interest in Shirley Hazard. She is now, and that's the work I've done, particularly early, early work with the publishing the, the edited collection of the essays and then the stories, particularly the stories, uh, because that included previously unpublished material uh, that, that, you know, again, nobody else had seen, things I'd found in, amongst her papers. So that new interest is generating the, the processing of the papers, which will allow for others to, to see and, and to, to have a different take, presumably. Uh, so, I, But beyond that, I think my sense of the estate's interest is they allow, will allow access to anybody who's interested in writing on, on Shirley Hazard. There's been things published that included some of her letters and so on, um, and, and permission for that was readily given and quickly given. So I don't think there's any interest in withholding or manipulating the story. Annabel Davis-Goff certainly read the, the manuscript but her suggestions were matters of style or storytelling rather than we don't want this to come out or, or whatever. So there, there was very much support in telling the truth and bearing witness to the truth of Shirley Hazard's life, which is I've, I've tried to be, you know, I've tried to be um, frank and honest and candid. Yeah, I think you are. And I think when she does something that you think she could have been more sensitive about you let us know actually we'll come to that we'll come to that let's go back to the very beginning she claimed that her parents origins were obscure and I wonder whether you think that meant that she was somehow ashamed of them and of this kind of suffocating gentility that you convey yeah I I think the shame was more I think she was very much ashamed of of her family and her her parents they were not the people she saw herself she was the goose girl she was the princess in in disguise I think she always felt that they were very very difficult people and she very quickly saw herself as aligned to a world of taste and discernment and refinement so the suffocation and the shame came more because they were uncultured people more because, and because they were personally both so difficult. Uh, difficult how? What do you mean by difficult? Okay, well, her mother suffered from mental illness, seems she was bipolar, mm. and as, as Shirley told the story of her mother saying, come and, you know, put your head in the oven, I'm going to kill myself, we can die together. I mean, saying that to a, to a little, to any, anybody, but to a little girl is, is kind of terrible. She writes so eloquently of and terribly of her mother through the, the, the character of Dora, and, and she was very open from the start that this was a portrait of her mother. This is in the book, which is? The Transit of Venus. Yes, probably yes. her most well-known novel. Mm. And, and, and her greatest. And Dora is one of, one of her great, greatest creations. Uh, but the reality was worse than that. Uh, was more nuanced, was more 
uh, more relentless. There was no getting away from her. And, I mean, that picture of her as the mother is very, very difficult is also borne out by uh, Shirley's sister, Valerie, um, her letters to Shirley. I mean, there's a dark kind of humour in, in the stories that both tell, but living with this, this woman who would not care for herself, could not care for herself, who travelled endlessly around the world, feeling at home nowhere and being an endless drain on both her daughters and, and demanding all the time. Uh, and, of course, that, that moved into other people's lives with uh, Elizabeth Harrower taking, taking care of her. Uh, and Shirley Hazard was unwilling to, to saddle herself with that burden. She, she stayed away. She let other people care for her mother, even while she was enduring the misery of constant letters from her mother, endless letters, uh, I couldn't read them all. There were so many and they're all the same and they're all just devastatingly either I, I want to die, I'm going to go away and kill myself or you're terrible and I never want anything to do with you again oh. or, or or just a, a litany of plans. I'm going to go back to England and live in a, a, a lovely little village somewhere and, you know, open a coffee shop in a library and, and just kind of crazy. Yeah, she was stuff. a fantasist, wasn't she? I mean, one minute it was a cottage in England, the next it was Tasmania. It was anywhere and everywhere. And she was anywhere, uh, yeah. crisscrossing the globe, it seemed to me, in search of something absolutely elusive. What about Shirley's father then? Yes. So he was, um, again, a very interesting character. And, and I should say at the outset, the vision of, of Shirley Hazard is that she was very much to the manor born, that she was from this elevated family and she did grow up on Sydney's North Shore and went to a, you know, a good private school and so on. But her parents were both illegitimate. They came from very poor backgrounds, very, very, again, culturally impoverished backgrounds, and they made themselves, particularly Shirley's father. So he was obviously a man of capacities and talents. He was smart enough. Uh, and with an eye for a chance, he worked his way into government contracts, into munitions and, you know, uh, providing materials during the war, the right place to be, and then managed to score the Trade Commissioner's job, the first one to, to Hong Kong, and Southern China, then New Zealand and then New York, which was, you know, he was seemed to be the, the most highly paid public servant in Australia at that point. So there's this quite meteoric professional career He's also a drunk. He's an alcoholic, she says, from her earliest days. There's those memories of lying awake at night, waiting for him to come home, worrying that he was going to crash the car driving home. Mm. So there's that, that childhood anxiety that doesn't leave her. And he was a philanderer. He was having a long-term affair with a woman who was obviously easier than, um, than Shirley's mother. Or maybe not a philanderer. I mean, uh, that's the only affair we, we hear of. And he apparently marries her after the divorce from Shirley's mother and mm. they live happily together. And, you know, so so it was possibly just a, a very incompatible pair. And I should say about um, Shirley's mother, her sister, Valerie, from whom she was estranged very early in life, wanted from the start to have the mother institutionalised. She felt this was, you know, and even though that might have been terrible, it's probably the proper response mm -hmm. to, you know, in, in the absence of other kinds of treatment. So there's not just the mother being terrible, there's a refusal to acknowledge the scale of that or an inability to, to acknowledge we, we didn't know then what we know now about mental illness 
about treatments, but she did have a good psych nurse who worked with her. It was more the daily kind of management um, of her medication and so on that, that led to the problem. So in a way, these problems needn't have been as, as bad as they were. But it's interesting, isn't it, Brigitte, that it didn't bring the sisters, Shirley and Valerie, closer to have these two parents, as you describe, quite the contrary. And also, I think it does explain, perhaps, why so many of the characters in Shirley's novels are orphans. You know, they are kind of, in a way, there's a positive aspect to being an orphan in that you're not tethered to these kinds of people. You can, in a sense, invent and create yourself, which is exactly what Shirley did. Yes, absolutely. I think that's very true. And that creative impulse that that is there in the fiction, in the fictional creation, as you say, is also at work in her life. She is creating a selfhood, uh, a, a new family, even down to, I mean, the treatment of her nephew, uh, which I touch on in, in the book, that I interviewed him uh, and and you could you could hear the hurt really that he had he had uh, written to her saying he would love to be in touch with his famous aunt and she barely responded, and yet she was a woman who was very generous to other people's children, to other families. Um, so the daughter of Robert Penn Warren and Eleanor Clark, who were her good friends, she was also very close to Rosanna Warren, their daughter, and to Rosanna's children. So. There's this interest in being family in a way with with people who she felt were her spiritual family, her aesthetic and imaginative family, but there is no connection to her actual family. No, it's interesting, isn't it? She wants to pick and choose in a sense and curate her own idea of an idealised family perhaps, but she doesn't attach importance perhaps to a relationship through blood. I want to ask you... Right from the get-go, it's clear that she has a much more European sensibility than an Australian sensibility. I know that obviously working at the UN, which we'll come to it in a moment, living in Hong Kong, living in America, gave her a great sort of cosmopolitan perspective. But how do you think she, she fixed herself as being European so early? Was that through literature? Absolutely through poetry, most of all. And and perhaps more than European, I think she thought of herself as worldly and as cosmopolitan. I mean, yes, it is filtered through a European sensibility. It reaches some kind of fruition in her engagement with Italy. There's almost this instinctive identification with, with things Italian, but it begins really with an identification with England, uh, with, with Britain, uh, that she imagines through her parents. And this is why she she went with the story of her father being Welsh, I think, even though he wasn't, he wasn't Welsh and she knew that. She knew that from the 1960s. There's the, you know, she said, I have his birth certificate. She didn't have his birth certificate. She had a letter from Somerset House saying, no, we don't have any record of his birth. You know, it's an outright lie. But even in the reviews of the book, I, I see people are still talking about the Welsh father and, and you know, the, the, the Scottish. I mean, her mother was Scots for sure. But um, so there's that, uh, which is a kind of colonial move. Mm-hmm. It is to disidentify with the province and to identify and, and she felt to identify her, with the, with the centre is that with what the she's, centre yes, absolutely, right. and when she goes to London, when she talks 
you know, she said, I, I, I lived in all these different countries. You know, I lived in England on my way to New York. They were there for a week and a half, maybe two weeks, you know. <laughs> like she didn't live in London. She stayed in a hotel for a week with parents, you know. And uh, But she felt at home there and, and, and spoke of it quite rapturously. But likewise, she talked about Hong Kong and China as places in the world that Sydney and Wellington, New Zealand were not, you know. So it's not simply Europe. She understood that there was a world in Hong Kong. She didn't get to mainland, or she did get briefly to mainland China, one visit to, to Guangzhou, but she, she was really, you know, mainland China was, was there as a presence, but she had no doubt that this was a world that mattered and that she could attend to. And she spoke uh, or wrote in great detail, and I've, I've quoted the section in the book from a letter to... Alexis Fenyapin's son, where she talked about the various factions in China that were uh, mobilising against Mao Zedong in, in that stage of the Civil War. So she kept that information about the political situation that the office she worked in and, and Alexis in particular were, were dealing with. She kept all that detail for the rest of her life so that, you know, 50 years later, she could, she could pass it on to his son. That that according of value and 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 meaning to to a quite obscure kind of political event, I think is quite quite telling. But it also suggests an attunement to a larger world, a world beyond Europe and beyond that colonial relation. And that world opened up for her, I think, finally in New York. I see her very much as a creature of the New York mid-century, of that particular cosmopolitanism of New York, which is not a colonial outpost, you know. I mean, yes, there was a British kind of part to its history, but it is as much an Italian city, a Jewish city, an Irish city and an African-American city as it is anything, you know, colonially related to Britain. That's the world that she comes to to flower in, to flourish in. Indeed, but um, I mean, we'll come back to Alexis Vedenyapin. Is it Vedenyapin? Is that how I say? Vedenyapin. Vedenyapin. Yes, right. We'll come back to him in a moment because he is an absolutely central and crucial relationship. But I just want to ask you first about her finding herself in New York because there's a kind of irony there. Yes, it's a great sort of melting pot city, and she relates to and identifies with and and feels very at home there. She belongs there. She's working at the UN, but the experience of working at the UN, which you would think, given all of the attraction to that melting pot phenomenon, would be a very positive experience for her, was in fact profoundly disillusioning. And what I love about your account of her time at the UN, because I've only ever heard about the UN from Shirley in a somewhat sort of different tone is that she wouldn't tell you that she didn't exactly shine there and that people thought that she was rather mediocre at her job. She didn't get promotions that she was expecting to get. People thought she was aloof and haughty. So was the problem that she was too idealistic and high-minded about what the purpose of the UN should be? Absolutely. But there's also a a mismatch really in, in our or in the sense that she gave of her presence there, because she was there in a very, very menial capacity. Yes. And, you know, the, you know she and, and as you relate, she, she was not very good at it and she didn't take it very seriously. I mean, the, the photograph in the book um, of her 
you know, taken in 1961 at the UN. She's there wearing a beautiful suit and, you know, makeup and, and she's painting her nails. You know, like, I mean, I know we all use office time for, you know, for different things, but that, that, that really encapsulated what the office was for her. And she, the, the diaries that time, I mean, yes, there's this anguish at her friends, people she knows who are being interrogated by... Uh, the the various sub, the subcommittees and investigated and so on and that's heartfelt and that's that idealistic misreading of of the situation for sure but the rest of it is all just the the, the love affairs and the gossip and who she likes and who she doesn't like I mean it's it's very it's very much you know the diary of a very young person uh, not particularly mature not particularly sophisticated so. She was far from the seat of power in the UN. Mm. That came later, I think, and that came that came as she developed a sense of her significance in the world as a writer. She felt she had uh, a platform that she could write about the the failures of the UN uh, from, and that she would be listened to. And, and that was true. She got published in the New Yorker, and and then you know in, in books, she her essays were picked up and and published in a way that others doing an expose of the, of the UN might not have been. Um, but they're not her best writing by a long, by a long chore. And they did not have an impact. They did not really have, have an effect. They were routinely overlooked and, and ignored. And I, I really can't answer the question about why she became so obsessed with it. But I think in a way it's that, that there's, a, there's a loss of perspective and a lack of proportion in in her judgment about what it is useful to to keep saying about the UN, and certainly I, I don't think I, I met one of her friends who didn't say she just wouldn't stop talking about the UN. She ruined dinner parties. She you yes, know yes, she became a sort of UN bore or a UN basher. Yeah, and yes, it there was some kind. It was a hobby horse. Yes, yeah. And everybody said it. She would not hear the criticism because she felt it was terribly important. She did raise some important points. Uh, reading a, a selection of the of the essays uh, about you know various kind of failings at the UN, they are you know sharp and well observed and and politically apposite and and so on. Uh, it's but it's the monumentality of it, the obsessive. Uh, disregard and uh, even the furor over what she called the censorship of Solzhenitsyn's books in the in the UN bookstore in in Geneva. You know, it it is a storm in a teacup. I mean, she writes majestically about it, and and I'm swept away reading reading her correspondence on the subject. And then you take a step back and go, wait a minute. You know, this is not even actually a UN bookstore. It was actually a books a bookshop on the UN property, and. You know, it's not really censorship. It's taking. You know, it's mm. uh, so it 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 was excessive and and out of kilter, but but also perhaps an indication in itself of that strange combination she was seems to have been of extraordinary sensitivity, you know, to to a fault, mm-hmm. and tenacity that she would there was a stubbornness that she would not let go of a point. And, you know, to her own discredit, I mean, she tells those stories in her diaries of even Francis saying enough, you know, another time, stop, stop telling me this. I, you know, heard it before. I heard it before. And this wasn't even about the UN. This was a book she was reading and, and that she found really engaging. He didn't, you know, and, and you know, that, that she would not stop. No. That she would not give up. 
We'll we'll come to Francis Stigmuller, her husband, in in a in a moment. But before we come to him, I do just want to mention one aspect of her relentless pursuit of the UN, where she really was journalistically absolutely on the money, and in a sense, the thunder of her accusation was somewhat stolen by other media and other journalists. She really uncovered Kurt Waldheim's Nazi past and associations. And she was not a journalist. She was not that kind of a bloodhound. So that really was quite a significant achievement, wasn't it? Yes, it was. She she made the point, when she made this to me, uh, when, when I spoke to her, that it, it was not simply, or it was not really the fact of his Nazi past itself. She said those things were just a reality, in particularly Austria, you know, during the war, but that it was covered up. And it was covered up by him and by others in the UN, presumably to um, to have some control over him. That was where the perfidy lay, as, as far as she was concerned. And uh, she was the first person to to make that uh, point clear, and I, I, I detail in the biography the the kind of process of that, and it was pursued uh, by a U.S. congressman, and she kept the, his that correspondence that's there in her papers at, at Columbia, where Stephen Solartz, the U.S. congressman, writes to Waldheim and says, "Is this true?" And Waldheim says categorically, "It is not true." So she has that that letter there. And then the journalist Jane Kramer, you know, pursued the story at, at greater length. But after, you know, it, it was noted that she made that observation about Waldheim. Uh, there was a profile of Waldheim and his wife in, I think, the Washington Post a few months after her her piece had been published, and they mentioned her spreading lies and rumours about oh. about them. So, you know, they they were alert to it, and and keen to to you know um, continue the 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 denial the, mendacity, the denial and the and the lies so um but then there's her doggedness in and she 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 writes to William Sean you must remember I was the first person he says oh, maybe you were you know but but Jane Kramer acknowledged and acknowledged how important that early calling out of old time on a range of things including that one was uh, for for journalists, but of course it didn't make any difference. He was still elected president of um, of, of Austria, uh, and then Shirley decided to to write the longer piece detailing um, detailing all that was published a few years later. Now, I I would say that there are two sort of men who sort of loom in her life in terms of key relationships, and and we've mentioned the names of both of them. So, in in her younger life, her great love and romance is with Alexis Vedenyapin. So who was he, for a start, apart from the fact that he was a white Russian? Who was he and what was it about this relationship that made it so important beyond the romance aspect? Yes, so he was, um, she met him in Hong Kong at the uh, the British Combined Services office where she was you know, working in as a not very good stenographer. <laughs> uh, and he joined the British Army uh, he, he'd grown up in, in Shanghai. His parents had uh, fled Russia with the at the revolution. Uh, his father had been uh, a member of the, I'm not going to say it right, the Preobrazhensky Guards, and the family were obviously well off. They travelled east to escape the, the revolution, like many other Russians, and ended up in, in Shanghai where the parents separated. 
He grew up speaking several Chinese languages. He was sent to school in England by his parents, and he made the point that his family's connection to England was literary rather than social. So that that's the heart of the the love affair, really, between him and Shirley. I mean, yes, he was incredibly handsome, he was dashing, he was heroic, he was a man of the world, but he was a lover of English poetry in particular. But she began reading Russian novels as well, those those early books. The Russians come in at this point. Um, so he was he, he had been to the boarding school in England. He spent his his holidays there. So he he'd grown up and sounded very much like a, a well-bred and upper class Englishman. But his letters to her are full of references to his Russianness and to his Russian family. And he's a little bit anxious about her response to them. Should she meet his mother and, and aunt? Because he says they're very old, they're very Russian, they're very foreign, you know, as long as you won't mind that. So uh, I think it's really fascinating that when she uses him as the hero she in, in uh, The Great Fire, her, her final novel, which retells this early uh, romance in a very different register, um, she turns him into an Englishman, uh, a well-to-do Englishman, because that smooths out, takes away and, and simplifies the, the complexity of, of his location in the world. And certainly their, their other friends uh, from, the, from the Hong Kong office talk about him as someone who's not English at all, you know, he's, who, is, who is very much bedded in a European and, and, and indeed a Russian sensibility. And, of course, that Russianness is part of what makes them incompatible because he, uh, his, his widow said to me, he used to say, he used to quote this Russian saying, scratch a Russian and you find earth. And this was his desire to become a farmer, was to be in touch with the soil. There is that tradition of connection to the land uh, and, and to grow things that is noble, that is spiritual, that is patriotic in a way. And those were very, very important aspects of his character. Yes, that's very Tolstoyan, isn't it? Absolutely it is. Yeah, as soon as we, you know, you, you hear that, you think immediately of those novels, which she had read. So she read that, she read those novels, but didn't read him in that way. And his letters to her, I mean, it's hilarious. He's just he's talking about, I've got the pigs. You know, when you come, you can be bottling fruit. I've got yeah. some secondhand furniture. I mean, and you can just see, I mean, she's this, she's, 19 you know like she wants a different kind of life I don't think I don't think it's a I don't think it's a class kind of thing that she's you know she I don't think she minds the lack of money but she cannot see that life as heroic or worldly um, she felt that he had squandered his his qualities his intellect his capacities she had seen him operating in this, at this kind of fulcrum point of the modern world, you know, relaying information about the Chinese Civil War to Whitehall and to to Washington, you know, that this this mattered. This was a mm. world that mattered, and she knew he had the skills to do that. Why would he cast all that away? Uh, and the answer is, this was, you know, the the life he wanted that he chose, but also, and and, and again, as a nineteen year old self a little bit self-obsessed 19-year-old, more than perhaps many others, she could not see him as a casualty of war. Uh, she wanted to write that as heroic 
but she will not account for the fact that he is suffering from some kind of post-traumatic stress. He is he collapses on the farm. He's thrown himself into work, uh, and and when he finally breaks with her, he hasn't written for three months because he's been bedridden with rheumatic fever and, as he says, some kind of emotional collapse. So this is a man who, years after the war, falls apart because of what he has experienced. And one might say he's very far from home. He's very far from his family. You know, this is, you know, an extraordinarily sad story. She will not see the sadness or the trauma or the suffering because he is a he's a man, he's a worldly man and he she needs him to be heroic. And that's a very poignant failure for the, for that romance which she never accepts. She is heartbroken when he breaks it off with her. She blames her mother uh, even though her mother could not have been responsible for it. Then years later she meets him again. She's swept up in the love and longing and then horrified by what she sees, exactly as he had predicted. Yes. He's happily married, living on a farm, the life, you know, communing with his cows, you know, like this is the life he always wanted. And she thinks this is squandered opportunities. This is wasted talents. So she she's very judgmental, very harsh. Very. And, and wrongly that she cannot see the happiness that he has created and the cure for his for his trauma you know he has he has somehow repaired himself and then she goes back to rewrite the story in this to me ultimately unsatisfying form of uh, a tepid kind of characterization and one-sidedness to both the hero and the heroine that you know it does not bear witness to the complexity or the interest of either of the real life characters uh, no. so but she needs to tie up those loose ends. She wants there to have been a happy ending. The great novelist that she is, she cannot see that, you know, the happy ending cannot cannot hold. No, it's really interesting, isn't it? Your analysis of that is is really fascinating. Her kind of blindness and also her inability to let it go and to recognise yes. that they were actually both saved from making each other profoundly miserable. I just wanted to ask you there, you mentioned poetry. And I mean, one of the things that was remarkable about Shirley was her capacity for remembering and being able to recite reams and reams of poetry. I was curious, she could recite prodigious amounts of it, and not just English poetry, but Italian poetry and French and whatever. But did she write any poetry herself? And if she did, why didn't she publish it? She did write poetry and wasn't very good. Oh. Yes. <laughs> um, I've quoted a couple, uh, a couple of lines here and there. Very sparingly, if very you sparing. did. <laughs> I, was, I felt, you know, I needed to save her reputation. Yeah, it, it is extraordinary. And, and that someone with that intuition for poetry, that poetic sensibility, who writes prose, that is better in, in poetry. Mm. And that beautiful comment by the poet Anthony Hecht about just how poetic her, her prose is, that she could be so unpoetic when, when she actually goes into the form. So she wrote, she wrote quite a lot of, that was sort of her apprenticeship, and she, she describes the poems as bad poems to her boyfriend, to Jan Lita, the, 
the Dutch boyfriend uh, who's based in Africa. And she, she does send a few to him, but he didn't keep her letters, so we don't have them. But that one of them ends with heureux jusqu'à la fin du monde, you know, happy to the end of the world. So that gives a sense, you know, of, of uh, how kind of sentimental and, and perhaps hackneyed the poetry, yes. might, that early poetry might have been. She tries to write a poem, the Long Division, Wellington, 1948, the separation from, from Alec. And when you set those few lines alongside the extraordinary picture she gives of Wellington and of provincial kind of desolation in Wellington in the Great Fire, which to me is one of the great parts of that book, is to bring that experience of dejection and provincial isolation and desolation alive. The the gap between the poetic version, which is not moving, and the, the prose version, which is, is extraordinary. She wrote another one. Again, I quote a couple of lines of it in the biography, about um, missing Francis, you know, Sorrento is full of women missing their husbands or something. It's mm. it's a bit better than that, but not much. <laughs> and uh, and she sent that one off to the New Yorker, and the poetry editor said, you know, thanks, no, mm. yeah. But she did tra- she did publish two translations of Italian poems by, and I'm not going to pronounce the name properly, Sparbaro, Camillo Sparbaro, who was, of course, Elena Vivante someone else we haven't spoken about yet, the Italian friend of hers had been a very close friend of Spavano. So this was, again, a revisiting of an earlier important friendship, love affair almost, through poetry. And those renditions are good, actually. They are quite lovely. So she's better in that mode, but the poetic creative act eludes her always. Oh, well, so you can't be good at everything. All <laughs> right. No, that's, fair enough. We're coming to Italy. We're getting to Italy. But before we get to Italy, I just want to ask you something there. You've mentioned the Great Fire a couple of times. And in the Great Fire, she refers to the white Australia policy. And I want to know what you think her attitude to race was while she was living in America. (sighs) Yes, this was, in her mind, one of the great rifts between her and her sister. She felt that her sister and her sister's husband had views that were more in tune with a white Australia policy than hers. She felt it was abs- – so she was very – her politics are very straightforwardly left-wing, progressive, but anti-communist. Um, I think that probably has its roots in her friendship with – relationship with Eden Yapin. Yes. But also with Francis Stigmuller, who was very much part of the – you know, the non-communist left in in New York intellectual circles of, of the post-war. So that's a very defined position and and she fits right in there. She she said that the, her sister and her sister's husband moved to Australia because they liked the racial policies of the Australian government. What her, her nephew told me was that his father was disturbed by the race riots in the US and felt that this, how did he put it, that this was a situation that was not going to be resolved quickly. So therefore they were better off not living in America. Now, reading between the lines, I can see why Shirley came to that judgment uh, because today that does feel like um, something closer to a racist kind of call 
than it might have seemed at the time. I don't know. I'm being a little oblique here perhaps, but I think she differed with them very strongly on that on that basis. She was obviously, and, and of course, Francis Stigmuller had uh, been, through his first wife, connected to friends with Ralph Ellison. They were um, patrons in a way of, of Ellison's writing and Francis's first wife and, and her family were significant patrons and, and supporters of African-American culture and, and writing and so on. So, But let me ask you this really bluntly and directly. Did Shirley have any black friends? Ah, uh, let me think. Did she know James Baldwin? Don't think so, no. So the only friend would have been Ellison mm-hmm. uh, and that was quite a vexed. Um, that, that friendship was very close with Francis and his first wife Beatrice uh, in the late 40s and early 50s, and then they kind of drifted apart. So, yeah, I don't don't think they had black friends. Mm. Okay, no, I just wanted to ask you that. Mm. Let's go off to Italy. It's time to go to Italy. Italy is central to Shirley's so-called rescued life. Could you tell us a little bit about the paradise that she discovered at Villa Solaya? Well, her first paradise was Naples, the wrecked post-war city of Naples, uh, full of collapse and ruin and starvation and deprivation. And uh, she talks about, the, you know, the luxuriousness of, of being able to lavish all her attention on the wonders of this city. So there was an apprehension of the magnitude of Italian culture that was not, that did not begin with the gentler picture of Tuscany, but began with the rawness of Naples. And Naples so she is, was course, she was able to tolerate grit, wasn't she? In, oh, that yes. proves that going to bombed out Naples, which really was not as picture postcard perfect as Tuscany, it was in a terrible state. She yes. could tolerate that grit. Not just tolerate, she embraced it. Okay, so she, I mean, she had a very tough year personally. She was still in love with her boss from the UN, from, you know, broken with her before she she left New York. She was very, very miserable, but she came alive and felt that she came alive in, in that city. And she went on loving and being connected to Naples for the rest of her life. And her Neapolitan friends said this. They said long before any other Americans would go, into the into the old city they were there they were always you know and and various other friends you know commented and on and observed this so it was gritty absolutely and and her passion for it was gritty and and it was based in a humanity a sense of humanity i mean francis stigmuller wrote that beautiful essay about the care that he received in a naples hospital after being knocked over by thieves and that story is replicated dozens and dozens of times. Their joy at a taxi ride back to the hotel. This is in Rome, not Naples, but the taxi driver talks, starts reciting poetry and, of course, Shirley matches him. <laughs> and the, the two of them are there reciting, you know, half a dozen Italian poets. He deposits them back at their luxurious hotel won't take any money for the cab ride. The porter at the hotel's in tears. Everybody's in tears. And the porter says it's only amongst the poor that one finds poetry today. Now, that is a genuine story of a, a, a real connection with Italy, with the Italian love of poetry, with Italian culture. That's not refined or elegant or it, it's it's gritty, as are those beautiful accounts she gives of family events 
honouring her her driver, her Naples driver, Salvatore, his son's wedding, his daughter's graduation. Uh, these are not rarefied or, or, or elite. These are regular people who love her and she loves them. And she, and loves, she loves that earthiness, doesn't she? She loves the earthiness and she loves the celebration, the wedding. She, I mean, that... I, I quoted just you know, tiny passages from it. It goes on for pages. She records every moment, every dish, every every move, every dance. You know, it that is life for her. So, having said all of that, yes, then there was Tuscany, and it was rapturous. Her her embrace of Tuscany and by uh, t- Tuscany, she had an introduction to the Villa Solaya, which had already been established as a kind of pre-war as a as a local anti-fascist kind of salon. And then post-war, because the family were running out of money, you know, they'd never been wealthy, but they they started letting out rooms to friends of friends, writers, artists, not major figures, but figures from the, from the literary worlds of London and, and New York. And Shirley, I mean, Shirley had an introduction to the Villa Salaya from another one of her UN bosses, the Australian Howard Daniel, who I think is a really, really fascinating character that we don't know nearly enough about, who had passed through his kind of uh, Jewish rescue networks in, in Europe, had presumably met the, the Vivantes. And so he sent her to Salaya and she arrives and falls in love. She falls in love with Elena Vervante, who's kind of half American, half Italian, uh, with her son, Paolo, who is a, a classicist, with the family stories, which are, again, extraordinary, and with this life of the mind and of the spirit that I try and give some sense of the importance of for her. Uh, she writes at length about Eleanor, about about the conversations that they had. And, yeah, it's, it is unlike anywhere else, I think. And one of Eleanor's daughters-in-law says later, we knew then, even then we knew it was a miracle, what, what was happening in, in that house. And so there was some alchemy of Eleanor's personality, uh, another not quite autodidact, but another amateur in in the richest sense, amateur literary kind of figure, an intellectual and poetic life and and artistic life. That was the final piece for for Shirley Hazard in, in creating a family. And she very much saw that world as her family. She says, Salaya was my, you know, domaine perdu. It was the childhood that I never had. And she races through that childhood in in those summer summer holidays at the end of the nineteen fifties, and then she's born as a writer. You know, it's it's you couldn't you couldn't make this up. You know, except she does. You know, she, she well, it, that. it does sound like those were halcyon days with an extraordinary group of people, and in a way that sort of prepares her for the relationship with Francis Stiegmuller because the relationship with Francis solidifies and confirms all the things that she cherishes and discovers at Salaya. And and with Francis, I get a sense from reading your book that she enters a world of high intellectual refinement and a world that is also, because of his financial situation after the death of his first wife, a world that is privileged 
and cosseted. So suddenly she has financial security, a circle of real luminaries that she can belong to and participate in as an equal. And she has a real partnership. But I'm just wondering whether in all of this, because it sounds so delicious and so enviable, whether you think that the world that she and Francis inhabit is in a sense quite cosseted and pampered and does that remove them a little bit from reality? The answer has to be yes and that reality comes crowding back in upon her at the end because the money does run out, things are really tight, the world collapses around her really and she you know, it, it it all unravels and kind of falls apart. But I mean, not yes, before still... some very, very good years swanning around very, Europe very in their Rolls Royce. In the Rolls Royce. I mean, it's extraordinary. I, I think it's an interesting fact about her character, though, an anecdote that, that one of her uh, writer friends, so this is a group of friends that formed around uh, her editor, the writer William Maxwell, who was mm-hmm. her New Yorker editor, later in, in life. She was, of course, friends with him, and, and Francis had been his friend uh, before that. So that, that was a very long-lasting friendship. But later in his life, she met a group of younger poets and writers that, that also um, gathered around him. So it was one of those, Alec Wilkinson, who, who I interviewed for the book, and he talk, talk, tells this anecdote about driving up to Maxwell's house and giving Shirley a lift, and they they are overtaken by a, a you know posh car, and he he mentions it's a you know Rolls Royce or something, and she says no no that's a Bentley, and he roars with laughter, and his wife roars with laughter, and they say. Shirley, how do you know what a, what's a Rolls-Royce and what's a Bentley? And she said, well, Francis had a Rolls-Royce. And they're, they're just like falling apart with laughter. Now, what that tells me is, you know, it's a great story. The, her social persona, her public persona, while rarefied, while privileged and so on, was not that of someone who would have had a Rolls-Royce, right? And neither was Francis's. The, the, their friends thought this was ludicrous, kind of Mm. unimaginable, to Mm. think of her as wealthy and privileged in that way. So that's kind of an interesting take for me or was an interesting take on that that world of privilege. That said, it was unbelievably cosseted and, and pampered and also untimely. I mean, I use the word quite a lot about her writing and, and herself in, in the book, but it's, it, it is an undeniable fact of her life. I mean, Francis was 25 years older than her and he was living a world that was already out of, out of time yes. in, in that, that modern world. His friends were old and she moves into this older circle almost immediately. And he's, he's embedded in the world of Flaubert, in the world of Cocteau, the world of, of um, Villon, you know, these, this, this vanished Paris. And that's a world they, they kind of inhabit after the fact. Uh, so it's not just rarefied in terms of wealth and privilege, but it belongs to a kind of life, a mode of intellectual life, that bellatristic kind of world that was not real even in the 50s and 60s while they were living it. And so that's something 
you know, an added layer. That's right. I mean, you can't imagine her going off to hear the beat poets, can you? You just can't. (laughs) And and it makes sense of how, you know, she looks at the abstract expressionists. Well, this is even before she enters that world. And she said, it's just hateful. It's like the most exciting kind of move in in painting in her life. And and she loves art. And yet she looks at this stuff and, and cannot see, cannot see that, you know, the Australian government buying blue poles was an extraordinary thing for the country. You know, she, she literally cannot cannot um, see the modern world well, for its glory, you know. Can, can I just jump in there? Because there's something since you've mentioned the, the Blue Poles incident, and that chimes with the fact that she does come back to Australia during the Gough years. So she's left Australia in 1947. After that, whenever she does return, people do think that she's quite out of touch. And and later on, she's criticised, I think, for being justifiably criticised, I think, for being out of touch. But when she came back during the Goff years, and she does actually meet him at a party, she seems quite impressed by the changes. Hugely. And she wrote about this in 1976-7 in The New Yorker. She wrote a long letter from Australia. And, uh, I mean, she obviously met all the people she spoke to for that. I mean, she met Whitlam there. Um, she tried to interview Malcolm Fraser, who was the you know the prime minister. He didn't didn't want to meet her. <laughs> she interviewed Jack Mundy. She writes about Olegos Trukanis, you know, the Tasmanian yep. photographer, who kind of, in a way, his photographs spearheaded the 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 Greens kind of certainly the Save Lake Pedder movement in Tasmania. I mean, she she met with real people who were part of. The, the post Whitlam change because you know and so she was aware of it as not just being about Whitlam it was a transformation of the country and she writes beautifully about that so that change and and she later says it was as if the country had grown young you know <laughs> that the old world that she'd grown up in was no more so that was genuine uh, Francis Diemuller says you know they come in in 1976, I think, for the Adelaide Writers' Week. And he says um, Adelaide's like one of the more enlightened Greek city-states. Yes. You know, it's so wonderful. It reminded him of of the New Deal years, of, of that investment in the arts. You know, she, she constantly makes comparisons where Australia is favourably compared to New York or to, you know, to the art scene in, in the US. She doesn't like it so much when Don Dunstan comes to visit her on Capri and won't shut no, up. She, no, and there was a lot more about that, that, you know, she really likes him at first and then, yeah, I think he could out-talk her and, and she wasn't, wasn't that keen on that. But it's interesting that she's so judgmental about someone else taking up the time fixatedly but, but is blind to her own capacity for that. So that's genuine and heartfelt. She was absolutely excited by the change in Australia. Two things shifted that and, and I mean, I agree with you that she was out of touch, but I think she was also criticised for telling truths about Australia yes. as well as as well as missing the point. So she's invited back, invited to give the Boyer Lectures in 1984 and, well, Michelle de has written brilliantly about about reading that book and expecting to find one kind of thing and finding instead a very modern, a very contemporary, a very in-touch account of Australia that is critical of Australian nationalism as it had arisen through the 70s and 80s. Absolutely. And we are now possibly 
more likely to look back at that, you know, um, that nationalism and, and, and call it for what it was. We can look back and say it was needed because we had laboured under this provincial kind of, you know, configuration of, of Australia. There had been a, 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 you know, a revolution, <laughs> a cultural revolution in a way here. Mm-hmm. And it was time to value Australian things, you know. Like I can see that argument. She couldn't. She, for her, nationalism was the original sin. It was an identification that was indefensible in any of its forms. And she remains anti-nationalist forever. And, and, and there is an integrity to that view. So she, what she does is criticise Australia for being too satisfied with its meagre achievements. I mean, there's that, that cutting line saying Australia has made a respectable contribution to the world of, you know, literature and art, but given what the advantages of Australia are, given the the privilege and the ease of life there, one might have expected more, you know. And and I think, I don't know, I remember hearing that in 1984 and thinking, yeah, actually that's, I reckon that's a fair cop. And certainly, I mean, I mentioned to you before, my father arrived in Australia about the same time Shirley Hazard left. He arrived as one of the first, you know, from the Baltic states, one of the first non-Anglo migrants and that, that were being actively sought under the white Australian policy. And he had the same take on Australia as Shirley Hazard. So when I read it, this was a view of Australia I had grown up with, right, for the, the European view, which was they could have done better. You know, yeah, good, have a go, you know, but keep, you know, don't rest on your laurels. That was the message of the Boyer Lectures. Mm. And I think that lesson holds. And I think that... And her insistence on her insistence, her insistent return to the matter of the white Australia policy in the Great Fire. I mean, there are other weaknesses in the Great Fire. Well, there are weaknesses in the Great Fire, but that is a strength to call out the Australia of that post-war period as having been grounded in racist policies that were not dissimilar to those being enacted in Italy in the 1930s. There's a historical kind of density and truth to that that she clings to. Your question about whether she had black friends or not, notwithstanding, and that's an important gloss to it as well. But where Australia was concerned, that was a a line that she was not going to deviate from. And I think it's a powerful part of the book, actually, that, that picture of Australia. It is. It is. And it's kind of uncomfortable to read, actually, because the reaction to the Boyer Lectures is very negative and hostile, which brings me to something I wanted to ask you about. There's a great sense in the book of her capacity for friendship, and I I want to come back to that in a moment. But I wanted to ask you about frenemies. And I I would say that her relationship with Patrick White, if you can even call it a relationship, was one of frenmity. So I'm interested in what you say about her attack on nationalism, because I would have thought that there would have been immense commonality and common ground in terms of the way Patrick felt about Australia and the way Shirley felt about Australia, but they don't seem to have been able to gel. Why not? No. Yeah, so interesting. Patrick White was able to say far more critical things about Australia than Shirley Hazard ever did. But that's because he was here. That's because he was here. He came back. Elizabeth Harrow came back. You know, this is Shirley was daring to be critical and she was basing a lot of her criticisms on what she learnt from Elizabeth and, and Patrick, you know. I mean, yes, so that's, I think there is, there is a failing in the Australian response to her as much as 
there is a failure on her part to keep up to date with with what was happening here. Um, but the frenemy aspect, I mean, that she was also had relations of frenmity with Elizabeth Harrower that are perhaps more complex. Mm. Okay, and, and there's also the the similarity with the Patrick White and Graham Greene friendships. The Graham Greene one is is extended over a longer period, but both of them preferred Frances uh, <laughs> and both of them found her intolerable because she talked too much. Yes. Now, part of that's simply fact, you know, all her friends say, you know, she spoke in arias, more cataract than woman when she got going. You know, <laughs> these are said fondly and admiringly, but you know, or even Annabelle Davis Goff said, you know, having a conversation with Shirley meant finding a point when you could interrupt. You know, <laughs> like it's so. There's that aspect of it, but there is a hardcore of misogyny in in both those judgments as well. And her Shirley's correspondence with Murray Bale, where Murray Bale relates to her. What the bitchy things that Patrick and his friends, and presumably Murray Bell as well, were saying about her and Nancy Keezing and other women at dinner. And there's a cruelty to them that she really feels and really minds. And that is, there is some pleasure being taken in by Murray Bell in relating that story mm-hmm. to her. I bet. And there is a lot of pleasure being taken by Patrick White. In, in making those points. And he goes on making them, you know. He didn't like her. Um, she knew he didn't like her. I think one of the first things she told me when, you know, um, she, she, he much preferred Francis. And she says to Elizabeth, you know, they all make the mistake. They think I'm more critical of, you know, these things than Francis is. Actually, Francis was the one who was most furious with Patrick White, but he was politer and didn't talk as much so. And a man, yes. a man and, 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 and a flobber expert. Like, exactly. You know, so so he could do no wrong. Shirley could really do no right. And and, and it is it is misogynist, the treatment of her and the the, the cruelty of, of Patrick's letter to her after Transit of Venus. It's, it's unnecessarily cruel. And it was a book that was hugely admired elsewhere and not admired here. Um, or so it seems, you know, being dismissed as the year's best-dressed women's magazine fiction, you know. Uh, well, he could be venomous. I mean, we well, know that. Well, that wasn't Patrick. That wasn't no, Patrick. No, that, that was wasn't him. But, but, but we know that he took delight in very venomous attack. Let's just talk very briefly about another dimension, though, that made the relationship, the friendship with Elizabeth Harrower so fraught, which is the fact that she delegated the responsibility for care of her mother to Elizabeth, who had volunteered without realising quite what this was going to entail and how long this was going to go on for. So it does feel, and I think you do imply that the relationship with Elizabeth did become exploitative. I think there's no question of that, but I, I'm not sure I completely agree that Elizabeth is simply a helpless dupe in this. I, 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 I think. Okay. I think why was she doing that? Mm-hmm. That to me is a fascinating question. One for Elizabeth Harrow's biographer to ponder. Shirley, there's there's no question she's aware of it, you know, and I, I quote what I can from the letters to show, you know, she says, look, this, you know, it's really terrible of me to keep on asking, you know, please tell me if it's too much or I know it's too much, but, you know, I'm going to ask anyway. Yes. But tell me if it's too much, you know, it's like, you know, it's too much. You should not, it, it is, there is no doubt she's taking advantage of Elizabeth. But at the same time, I say Elizabeth's a writer who should be 
taking responsibility for herself and saying, I won't do this anymore. Um, she, she clearly resents it from quite early on and goes on doing it and continues to do it. And, I mean, again, there's a massive volume of, of letters between the two of them. And the detail that Elizabeth goes into about what Kit is doing, that's, you know, what, what the mother is doing, what's going wrong, what's happening with her medication, what's happening with her pension. I mean, there is an embrace of this role, role yes. of this task, diabolical that it is, that I don't understand. I cannot understand. Elizabeth is an, you know, Elizabeth Harrower, extraordinarily smart woman, incredibly strong personality, no question that she undervalues herself or her significance, and yet she allows herself to keep doing this. And so, I mean, it's terrible. So it takes two. Ab- You're basically it, saying it takes two. It takes two. It takes two. It's a, it's a great mystery. I cannot believe that Shirley Hazard does it, that she goes on doing it. I mean, that is is monstrous, I think. And I cannot believe that Elizabeth goes along with it as well. And the... I mean, the, the, the fight, the argument that they have when Elizabeth goes to Italy is, I mean, oh. the, the passive aggression of that is just terrible. It's but it's terrible. such a disastrous visit. It couldn't be worse. Like, it literally couldn't be worse. Elizabeth's in a bad mood from the start and horrible, like really badly behaved from day one and then <laughs> runs away. And she didn't want to go. But she went. Yes. You know, she didn't want to travel. And she was quite capable of saying no to other things. So what was it? Why was she doing that? I don't know. I don't know. We haven't talked at all about Capri, and we have to talk about Capri. Capri seems a supremely impractical place to live. (laughs) And yet, I mean, you know, if you visited the island even today when it's completely swarming with tourists, you can see the charm and the appeal and the romance and the glamour of the place. But why Capri? It was there. It was next to Naples, I think. I mean, she, that's one of the first things she records was her passionate embrace of Capri, uh, of the look, of the feel, you know, dear, beloved, beautiful place. You know, this is, this began the cure for her as well as Naples. I don't know. I, walking around Capri, there's something that recalls Middle Harbour in Sydney. There is something in the topography. Not really. She would hate you saying that. She would hate you saying that. Although she did say that her view, the view from her, you know, the terrace of her apartment in in Naples, in Posilipo, um, she looked down onto the Roman ruins in the water and they reminded her of the rocks of Balmoral. So she she saw that association. And she does say, writing about Sydney, the sea has always been part of, you know, she could not imagine herself not living near the sea. And as I walked around, I, walking around her part of Capri, which is not, even now, is not really the touristy part. And when the boats go at the end of the day, exactly, you get a sense of what, where she lived and how she lived there and why she loved it. Because it is regular people shopping and walking and kids coming home from school and, and deliveries being made and, and that life. And, and it's not wealthy unlike, you know, the part of Sydney that she grew up with. But you see growing in the gardens the flowers, the plants that grow in Sydney, you know, the plumbago, the the hibiscus, the bananas, the, the, lemons. Know, the, the lemons, the jasmine, you know, the um, bougainvillea. 
the light, there, there are also the storms, the, you know, the, and that sense of damp, you know. I mean, yes, there's the ancient buildings. That's an, the ancientness of, of Australian culture. She never understands, she never grasps, you know, the 60,000 years of continuous civilization here. But then not, no one else did in white Australia, and, you know, the white Australia she grew up in. True. So, you know, uh, and, and, but it was not and remained illegible to her as it has remained to so many other Australians. But I think there was just as Salaya gave her a family that, you know, was home, that, that was the family she wanted, so Capri gave her a version of the Sydney topography that she loved, that she identified with, the light, because that's what she records day after day after yes. day for the rest of her life, those diary entries. And I want, I, I've quoted quite a lot of them. The, you know, it, it's the tip of the iceberg. But this is what she was writing when she wasn't writing novels. She was writing these letters and these diary entries, just chronicling the movement of the light, the movement of, you know, where you can see the snow on the on the mountains, where the ships are passing the island, this this catalogue of days of sights of light and water, that is a version of Sydney that she could embrace. Well, and, and that's I, hard. I think. I think the other thing about that, Brigitte, is that it reciprocated the love and affection. Capri loved her back. The locals yeah. loved her because she came back and back and back and because she knew the names of their children and remembered their birthdays. And she was completely embedded in that culture in a way that they recognised as being authentic. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, uh, that, is that sense is still really strong, um, the affection for her by all sorts of people, down to her housekeeper who I met through through another friend who just, you know, like th- th- there was an embeddedness in in that that community that was genuine, which sits so oddly with the coldness towards her own family as exactly. well, you know. So it's. Um, <laughs> It is it is intriguing, isn't it? I want to ask you just a couple more things. For someone who hasn't read Shirley Hazard, why should we read her today? I mean, I was surprised in your book, I have to say, to discover that she had a kind of prescience when she talked about the presence of a volcano, a kind of Vesuvius in our lives, a sense that something terrible was coming. I thought, oh, my God, you know, I wonder how she would have responded to the threat of climate change creatively, artistically. But Absolutely. why do you think she's relevant? Is she relevant? Or do we read her simply? Should we read her simply? because of the enduring beauty of every sentence. I don't see any disjunction between those two things. To me, relevance is grounded in the quality of the writing, first and foremost. Another answer to that question is, so we'll go back to the point you made um, that that I wrote my first graduate thesis on, on Shirley Hazard. My sister, who died just as I was beginning writing this book, sent me a copy of The Transit of Venus in paperbacks. So it must have been 1982. And she said, I, 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 you have to read this. I think it was written just for you. It was, you know, it, it's just the book you've been waiting for. And I felt that as I read Transit of Venus. And there were, there were several, I've tried to unpack why my response was so strongly identificatory. It was a book I, uh, in a, a mode that I valued, 
above all, which was, you know, a big novel that was about a young woman that took that young woman's life and her passions and her inclinations seriously that said this is worth writing about, this is worth reading about. At the age of whatever I was, I needed to be told that lesson over and over again and that's, you know, and that that woman was Australian and that you could write about Australian landscapes in a way that gave them that charge of poetry and of a heroic heroic endeavour of a life you take your own life seriously, that who you fall in love with matters, being right, being wrong, suffering, being joyous, those things, you know, mattered. And they were being told in a register that was my world, that was recognisable to me in some way. That sense of moment and of seriousness about the project of life and of writing, whether relevant or not, whether about a world we recognise or not, that stays with me as something that is at the heart of my profession, the profession of literary criticism, why it, it, it is why I get up each day and go with joy into the lecture theatre or the tutorial room to talk to young people about books, because about works of poetry or of, of fiction, because that is our imaginative life and we take ourselves seriously in engaging with that life. And Shirley Hazard brought that lesson home to me in a way that has stayed with me and that was the the real core of, of coming to write this biography. I only met Shirley Hazard once and found her elegant, formal, prim and proper, and rather old-fashioned. Olibas's biography really illuminates how much of Hazard's fiction was the result of experiences and people who had an impact on her life. It is also a reminder of how privileged and rarefied her existence was vulgarity, popularism, these were not on her radar. In an email exchange after our interview, I asked Brigitte a follow-up question about how she thought Shirley felt about sex in her life as much as in her work. And she replied, and I quote, she accords sexual love the highest place of anything in her novels. End of quote. But she also said that was less important to her in her personal relationships, adding that one friend who knew her and her husband said that beauty was more important to her than happiness. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. If you like us, leave us a review. It helps us to reach more ears. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipe Wolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to its traditional owners. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. This episode of Life Sentences was produced with a grant from Create New South Wales, and I would like to acknowledge their generous support.